Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Ryan, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how you got involved and interested in machine learning. What's your background? Sure. I'm a computer scientist by training. And what really drew me to machine learning was this idea that I could have an impact in a variety of scientific domains through through statistics and through, through knowing about um, uh, computer science and machine learning. And it, it allows me to sort of apply these methods to a variety of domains without having to sort of derive, you know, domain expert features about these problems. And so did you have a formal education in AI? Where did you, how did you kind of come up to speed on the tools and techniques that you use today? Right. So I did a bachelor's degree in computer science in Indiana. This was at the Rose Holman Institute of Technology where I studied computer science and mathematics. And then for, for graduate work, I was at Carnegie Mellon University, where I was in a, uh, a pretty fun uh, computational neuroscience program, which was a fun way to combine sort of stats, computer science, and the study of neuroscience. So that's sort of where I picked up the statistical machine learning techniques. Awesome. And does your work today, uh, do you spend a lot of time applying the machine learning in neuroscience and related fields, or do you work pretty broadly uh, you know, across domains. Right. So I, I like to work broadly across a variety of domains. So I've been having fun, you know, applying these these methods, which are pretty general to problems in genomics, problems in medical imaging, which is the subject of this paper, and a variety of other scientific domains. Awesome. Awesome. So why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about this paper? Sure. Yeah. So this is this was an effort to um, using the, the UK Biobank, which is the set of fundus photography images uh, that were annotated with patient metadata, tried to take those images, send them through a neural network, and try to see what we could predict from it. And what we found was actually quite surprising. You could predict a, quite a wide variety of aspects of a person's health just by looking at this fundus photo. Why don't we get started by talking about what is a fundus? Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> um, so uh, a fundus photograph is... is a pretty routine thing, actually. That, that I'm sure most of the listeners of this of this show have have actually had taken themselves. So it's simply a picture of the back of the eye. So you know, a specialist would use a, a camera called a fundoscope. They they take a picture of the back of the eye, and and that's and that's the retina. Um, so if you go to the ophthalmologist, you probably have this taken routinely, kind of once a year. So is this the thing that happens when they like blow the burst of air in your eye? Not quite. It is. It is a camera. So you, and, you know, it's just a normal you know, picture. Um, it's actually, you know, very pleasant and non-invasive. Um, you simply take a picture of the back of the eye. You can see in the image. You can see things like the optic disc and blood vessels sort of emanating out of that. And 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 doctors use this to look for a wide variety of eye diseases. And what we're showing in this paper is that you can look at other diseases as well. Awesome. So one of the things that I glean from the paper was that, you know, I've, I've seen a bunch of articles about the paper and they all kind of focus on your ability to, to predict some interesting cardiovascular risk factors. Um, but one of the things that seemed most interesting was that, uh, and that didn't get picked up in a lot of these articles is that you didn't really go in 
with a direct correlation between a lot of the things that you were able to predict in the data set meaning um, you know, it wasn't already known that looking at these these retinal images, you could predict things like age and gender and stuff like that. But you discovered that uh, through the research. Is that the correct interpretation? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we started. So you know, the the, the background uh, work from from my current team is that we've we've been using these images to look at a variety of eye diseases. So predicting uh, diabetic retinopathy, for example, at the level of accuracy of a doctor. And so when we started using this data set, that's that's exactly where we started was trying to predict look at eye diseases. And then what we noticed is that there's a wide variety of metadata about the patient available in this data set. And so we sort of added those variables to the model in really kind of a diagnostic kind of way. So these are things like age and gender and, and all kinds of other things. And we felt like those variables, they should be a you know very high fidelity in the data set because it's very easy to measure someone's age or ask their gender. Um, and so we felt like it was a great sort of control or ground truth that we could add to the model. Um, mm -hmm. But then what we discovered as, as we were training the model is actually we were able to predict these things with remarkably high accuracy. And in fact, in the beginning, we thought it was, it was a bug in the model. It was a problem because, you know, you, you look at a gender AUC of 0.97 and you show that to someone and they say to you, it must be, you must have a bug <laughs> in your model because there's no way you can predict that with such high accuracy, right? Um, and, and you can't ignore an AUC of 0.97, especially when the classes are balanced. This is quite a robust prediction from the model. Um, and in fact, as we dug more and more into it, we discovered that this wasn't a bug in the model. It was actually a real prediction. And so drill in a little bit more on the kind of that, the realization. I, I'm imagining that you're, what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that you started by actually uh, using this, you know, the things that you ultimately found you could predict as features of your model. So as inputs, and then, you know, at some point along the way, you found out that they were highly dependent on the images themselves. Is that kind of the way it came about? Sort of. So the input to the model was always simply the images in the fundus. So, okay. we're, so always using the, the pixels of the, of the image. And then alongside it though, you can predict many things simultaneously. And actually what we found, um, just through our research is that when you when you give the model many, many things to predict simultaneously, it actually does better overall. It's sort of like giving the model something to do with all of its capacity. And so as a result, we would throw in things like, why don't you try to predict the age, the gender, and actually all kinds of other things that we thought it probably couldn't predict. So it would serve as a as a nice control. But in reality, what we found is it's, it's doing quite well. And so we started with with gender. Um, that was the most. That was a very surprising one, and we realized that it, it in fact was a real prediction. It was actually doing such a good job. And then we discovered age. And here, here it's slightly a different prediction. You're you're regressing to a floating point value. And what we found is that age, you were actually correct within something like three years of the person's actual age, which was just remarkable. Mm -hmm. Because when we talked to doctors, they would tell us, "Sure, I can tell the difference between an old eye or a young eye." But then we tell them we're actually able to tell you the age within three years, and they're quite quite surprised by that. Yeah. So you said something in passing that I wanted to drill in on a bit. Um, you found that the model was you you improved the model. Maybe you can be more specific or kind of restate the what you said. Uh, but it sounded like you were saying you improved the model's overall performance across a bunch of measures. Like each time you asked it to do something new it got better overall. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. So, so this is called multitask learning. What we found is that 
so given a fixed model, as you add more and more features that you want it to predict, you're sort of giving giving the model something to do or letting it use its capacity. And so it, it has a, a tendency, you, you it can't possibly overfit because it's being asked to predict so many things. And as a result, you you sort of improve the performance of the model overall. Oh, interesting. And you didn't apply necessarily or go out of your way to apply kind of multitask learning, you know, techniques or anything like that to try to improve the performance. But rather, this was just, you know, you got better performance for free by asking the model to do more stuff. That's right. Exactly. And and that's sort of a feature of this particular data set in which there are many, many uh, uh, metadata values that we could try to predict. You know, it probably may not work in every possible problem or every domain, but this was one in which it actually worked. Now that you have seen this, if you're working on a problem, you would you, you know, would one of your steps in optimization be just trying to come up with other stuff for the network to do? Like, is it that is. a rational way of thinking about it? It is, absolutely. And this is a technique we're applying to lots of different problems, actually. So uh, another example where this worked really well was in our, our efforts to predict diabetic retinopathy. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you sort of have this grade that's given by the doctors. Are you one of these five classes of, of the disease diabetic retinopathy? But there's all kinds of other things you can predict about the image, such as is it a, the image quality? So would would the grader say that this is a high quality image or a low or an unusable image? Or things like, is this a left eye or a right eye? which is you know not that useful of a prediction but adding this this extra extra stuff into the into the model actually helped it all quite a bit mm -hmm. I had a, a note to ask about kind of right versus left eye and and I didn't see that mentioned in the paper at all um, did that come into play uh, at all in the this recent mm -hmm. paper yeah so that that's another uh, feature that we try to predict alongside of you know age and gender and smoking status you also predict is this an image of a left eye or a right eye okay and now how uh you know how arbitrary can you can you get with this like can you you know could you for example i guess you'd need a label um but could you come up with you know some arbitrary metric like the you know, the vascular density of a retina image or, you know, the color shading or something like that and try to, you know, maybe find some mechanical way to produce labels and then ask the network to try to match to, to that as well? Absolutely. I think it's a very fruitful uh, avenue of research for when you have a problem and you're trying to optimize your model to do better. I think this is one way to, to try that. Um, it doesn't work in every case. Like the features need to be sort of um, informative or correlative or interesting. Like I think mm -hmm. creating um, synthetic features that actually aren't um, correlated with what you're trying to predict probably won't help as much. Um, but it's definitely a fruitful area of research for sure. Can you give me a sense for like the effect that this had? You know, what are we talking about in terms of uh, performance lift ultimately? You know, is this, you know, a, a few percent or is this, you know, how significant is it? Right. It's something like a few percent. These are the kind of things where when you're when you're sort of at the middle to the end of a project and you're trying to eke out, you know, all the possible gains in a data set, this would be a strategy to try to use. You know, it's not going to transform the problem because ultimately all you're learning are sort of the correlations between the features anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but it but it does, you know, help a couple percent. Um, and, and there there are many other techniques that we try to use to try to eke out that kind of last percent in, in model performance. Mm hmm. 
Um, so I guess as often happens here, I kind of, you know, augured into a particular interesting detail, but we got a little bit off of track in talking about the project as a whole. So you, one of the things that I noticed in addition to predicting, you know, developing this model that predicted all of these factors, as well as the kind of core factors that you were looking at, the, the cardiovascular risk factors, uh, you also tried to address the explainability challenge uh, that uh, is often faced by deep learning models. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so as, as you mentioned, it's it's often the case that a criticism of these kinds of models is that they're so-called black boxes. And I think there there's a, a, a very uh, long and, and growing body of research showing that these models are actually shouldn't be called black boxes. They, they're actually quite explainable in many different ways. Um, and the technique that we used here is called soft attention. And so the idea is to create a network such that you're sort of successively zooming in on the pixels, and then you kind of ask the model, which were the pixels that 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 made you uh, uh, make that prediction? And then you then you can project those pixels onto the original image and get an idea for why the model made the the, the choice that it did. And so when we did that with this paper, we looked at a variety of cardiovascular risk factors and created these heat maps of, you know, what were the pixels in the image that led you to make that prediction? And what we found was actually pretty cool. So there are some predictions in which uh, the predominantly the blood vessels were were the, were the informative features, and so you could sort of see these as these the, in the heat in the paper we use these green heat maps, and they sort of snake along and follow the the blood vessels as they're emanating out of the optic disc. Um, and so a few of those uh, predictions in in particular are the prediction of the age and the prediction of the blood pressure. And so the blood pressure makes a lot of sense. If you want to predict the blood pressure, you need to look at the at the at the blood vessels. Sure. Um, and then the other predictions, so for example, the gender prediction, were, were actually focused on quite different features. So there we saw things like um, the macula and, and the size of the optic disc. And when you go back and like show these images to doctors, they can sort of, you know, provide feedback and sort of back up some of these findings. So when you, when you show these heat maps to doctors about gender, they say, oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's this research about the, you know, the ratio of the sizes of the optic disc and the caliber of the blood vessels as they emanate out, and that's predictive of gender. Um, and so this sort of gives, um, uh, you know, a bit of validity to the predictions and also makes people feel much more comfortable. Mm. When you're applying this this soft attention mechanism, do you are you ultimately training kind of multiple models in parallel, or is it you know one big network that has a bunch of different outputs? Yes. So in this particular case, it's, it's two separate networks. We had we used um, the Inception V3 architecture to do the majority of the predictions, and that network has the the highest AUCs and the best accuracy. And then we train a separate model, which is this smaller soft attention model to do the model explanation. Um, for this particular paper, that was done just because the inception architecture had a had a better performance, and and we wanted to report the best performance. But it could it could have been the same model doing both actually. Um, okay. Yeah. So it is sort of um, a question of like what the goal of the of the prediction is. So if your goal is to be able to show these heat maps and sort of uh, give an idea to someone of why you made these predictions, then maybe a network like the soft attention network is the way to go. And the, and the accuracy is actually only slightly worse than if you use a much bigger model like the Inception V3. Okay. And did you 
did you test a bunch of different models or did you start with, you know, start and finish with inception, um, you know, with some prior knowledge that it would probably perform the best? Right. So in, in terms of broad, like architecture, what we found is that, uh, pretty much in every problem that we try, the inception architecture simply works the best. And so it, it's hard to move away from it because it, it seems to predominantly always work the best. You know, and this is the, the network that's, you know, uh, running lots of products in, all around Google, such as Google Photos and things. And so it just it's simply the case that when you send it a lot of images, that architecture seems to do the best. Now, there's lots and lots of hyperparameter optimizations that can be done to that network, things like, uh, you know, the sizes of things as you grow out the layers and all kinds of things that we definitely explored as part of this as part of this work. Um, but predominantly, the, the inception architecture seems to work the best across a wide variety of problems. And that's true not only in medical imaging. It's also working for us in genomics and, 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 and radiology and other other things. Uh, one of the other things I noticed was that you use transfer learning here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's a pretty standard technique nowadays for when you don't have as much data as you would trading data as you would like. And so there's actually a benefit to training this model on cats and dogs and pictures of uh, flowers and, and buildings and things. And then starting from those weights and telling the model, you know, forget about cats and dogs now and actually learn about retinas. And now you're going to start from those weights, but still update uh, as you as you look at millions and millions of retinas. Yeah, it sounds like the fact that that, you know, helped you, you know, bootstrap your training process. That's not a surprise. You do that a lot as well. Yeah, so that technique is used actually quite a bit um, across products here and across products uh, basically everywhere now. And it, it's a it's a small boost. Um, certainly, having more retinas, pictures of retinas, would be way better than having pictures of cats and dogs. But it is the fact that these retinas are actually closer to natural images than they are to random images. And so you do get you do get some boost by training on doing this pre-training on other data sets. Yeah, I had a conversation with someone recently. Um, I forget I forget the specific context. We didn't have a chance to go into a lot of detail, but he made kind of a passing comment that transfer learning, you know, almost like transfer learning had been debunked or something like that, or it doesn't work in practice. Um, clearly, you know, it does for these kinds of problems and you see it a lot. Do you have any, you know, care to guess at what that might be referring to? Have you seen... Um, you know, frustrations in applying it to certain types of problems or anything like that? Yeah, a couple of things. So one is that the, the benefit you're going to get is actually much, much smaller than you would like. Um, you know, it, it's not like you're adding millions of more training uh, points to your data set. You're actually, it's, it's a much smaller factor because it is the fact that you want these models to be optimized to learn about retinas, right? Mm -hmm. And the patterns in retinas. But it, um, it's just a matter of sort of bootstrapping those image-like features and, and maybe the, the lower layers of the network and you just sort of get some benefit from that. So that's the first thing is that the benefit's actually much smaller than you would hope for. Uh, the next thing is it, it, it kind of depends on how close your problem is to the to the problem in the of these natural images. So, for example, if, you're, if your data set is, is sort of uh, synthetic images or experimental images or, or things that don't look like pictures of cats and dogs, then it, then it will help much, much less. Mm -hmm. And that I would expect that to be the case with these retinal images, but you, you kind of characterize them as, as being similar in some ways. 
Is is it just kind of the naturalness of the image as opposed to, for example, like a computer generated image? Exactly. So so these definitely aren't random images. These are um, they have lighting features that you could maybe learn. They have um, they certainly have color um, uh, uh, correlations and spatial correlations that you could learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it's the case that these images are closer to natural images uh, than to just sort of starting from random weights. Yeah. And when you say writing features, uh, do you mean like metadata, like capture time and uh, maybe capture location or things like that that are kind of burned into the image? Uh, you know, it could be because these are, you know, these are cameras. A fundoscope is a camera. And so mm-hmm. there there are definitely uh, camera related artifacts that you could probably learn and pick up on, even if they were, you know, this camera versus versus other camera images of, of natural images. I, I, and maybe I maybe I misheard you when you said writing. If, in fact, that, there you know, there were like optical, you know, characters writing on these images like the, you know, patient name or whatever, you know, would you would you have thought to do, you know, either mask those or, you know, do you worry about the network learning like, I don't know, uh, you know, times, time of year, um, mm-hmm. you know, n- types of names, that kind of thing? Yeah, so definitely when you're working with medical images, that that's something to definitely worry about. So um, we have this process by which we try to de-identify those images. So we mm-hmm. would first run it through um, a process to sort of ask is there is there writing on the image is, is one common way to do it so okay and these are standard sort of like uh ocr kind of techniques like do you see uh any kind of writing what is the writing and if there is we would mask that out yeah interesting and then with regard to the the transfer learning you mentioned kind of using the uh using a network trained on ImageNet and kind of bootstrapping with the the weights from that network I've also talked to folks about kind of a, you know, what I guess is another kind of transfer learning where you're kind of training a network and then kind of chopping off the last layers and replacing the last layers with something else uh, that's more specific to your domain. Do you, uh, I guess this is a bit of an aside, but are there kind of more specific names for each of those two things or would you, would you call them both transfer learning? Uh, I think they're both called transfer learning. Um, we we do that procedure as well, where we're chopping off. Um, you know, if you, if you have a network trained on thousands of classes, such as cats and dogs and buildings and flowers, then it's natural to sort of chop off that last layer and add sort of you know uh, predictions for you know gender, which is you know uh, a classifier prediction, and then age, which is a floating point regression prediction prediction, and you sort of add these extra layers to the top of the network, and then those layers have to be pre-initialized with sort of random weights. So those things definitely need to be learned as you optimize the as you optimize the network. Um, but I think in both cases, it's sort of called transfer learning. And there, there are lots of other um, machine learning techniques we try to do to augment the data. Things like random flipping of the images and and brightness, random brightness changes and things. And these are ways to sort of augment uh, your training data in, in small ways. And I imagine that you have a, a standard kind of script or, you know, or a pipeline that you send images through that does all this? Or do you uh, more kind of hand apply these things on a problem by problem basis? By, by now, it's somewhat standard um, because these techniques like, 
you know, flipping and rotations and um, brightness changes, those are those are can be applied to any kind of image, whether it's an image of a retina or other things. And so those techniques are pretty standard. And everything we've done is built on top of TensorFlow. Uh, and these are using TensorFlow ops to do those image manipulations. Mm -hmm. But the code is shared amongst many, many teams here now. And so you, things like flipping and, and changing brightness and the like, are you also doing like kind of random crops and that kind of stuff is, you know, how... How many or how big is this pipeline of kind of mm -hmm. augmentation operations? Is it a handful or is it a, a bunch of things? It, it, it's quite extensive. It can be it can be a bunch of things. It, it sort of depends a little bit on the problem domain. So just one example is for us, the crop, the random crops and things didn't quite work out as well because the camera image is actually pretty standard in terms of its size and its uh, field of view and things mm -hmm. because, you, you know, it's it's a patient setting where the patient puts their face into the camera. And so the field of view is actually pretty, pretty set. Um, and, and these images are taken by, you know, professional uh, ophthalmologists. And so it, the, that kind of stuff. So, the, so adding crops doesn't quite help as much. So it's a matter of sort of capturing the natural variability of the training data. Um, and so those, those sort of augmentations can be turned on or off, uh, depending on what your problem domain is. You briefly mentioned the data sets uh, and, and kind of how that data was sourced. Uh, in the paper, you there, uh, I recall you mentioning one of the data sets, the UK data source, but in the paper you mentioned two, one from the UK and one from the US. That's right, yeah. So um, we started primarily by looking at the UK Biobank because this, is, this was a pretty fun data set that had lots and lots of metadata about the patient. And then when the... When we wanted to sort of validate these predictions, we used another data set called the IPAX data set, which is a set of images from a U.S. Uh, tele-ophthalmology service uh, where, um, you know, these images are sent out. They're graded by professional ophthalmologists, and they also had, they also had some of the same metadata um, associated with it, and so we could validate some of these predictions. One of the things that I noticed in the paper was that you, in reporting performance and results and the like, you... Uh, always treated these data sets separately. And I was wondering whether uh, you, for example, combined the data sets and evaluated performance on or trained on the combined data set and evaluated performance on kind of a randomized sample from these data sets, you know, you know, and or kind of what your general thinking is about that whole line of thought. Yeah, so we had to be a little bit careful here because some of the data sets had some of the some of the variables and others didn't. So mm -hmm. just for an example, systolic and diastolic blood pressure, those were available in UK Biobank, and so we trained on those, but they aren't available in IPAX, and so we couldn't report the 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 results there. We actually, you know, we couldn't train a model on that because that data wasn't available. Um, and so that's one reason why it's sort mm. of very carefully split between the two things. Um, there are actually it looks like only age is common to the two data sets. And, and gender, yeah. Age and gender, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's just an, an unfortunate feature of the data. Um, mm -hmm. we, we're still working on trying to collect other data sets which have these other metadata available. Um, one cool thing about IPA, the IPAX data set, though, is they had HbA1c level measured for their patients. Mm -hmm. And so this is a measure of blood glucose. Um, and so it was really cool to be able to try to predict that, but that that but that uh, feature is not available in UK Biobank. So we had to play a little little bit there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks like uh, that was the 
the only feature that, you know, for which you didn't consistently outperform the baseline. Is that right? And what what's your intuition around that? Yeah, so I think the the mean is sort of slightly better than the baseline, but if you look at um, 90% confidence intervals, they're they're basically overlapping. And so what I think it's saying is that there are some features in the images which are correlated with HbA1c, but you know it's not it's not a slam dunk prediction that you would want to sort of uh, bet the house on. Mm-hmm. As is the case with you know age, where you've got this you know very accurate uh, set of predictions. Right, exactly, and we try to be very careful about predict producing the 95% confidence intervals to give someone an idea of how how accurate we thought these predictions were and whether they were actually um, you know predicting something real or just sort of regressing to the to the mean values in the data set mm-hmm. and yeah and how did you produce the confidence intervals and the p-values and and the statistical measures like that that you um, that you mentioned in the paper Mm-hmm. So all the confidence intervals are done through bootstrapping of the eval set. So you sort of randomly select from that eval set many, many times. And then from that, you have a distribution of AUC values. And then you can report the 95% confidence interval of those. And that's true for um, the AUCs and, and, and also the mean squared errors and things. Awesome. Um, you you and, and Google more broadly alone are doing a ton of work in this area, specifically applying deep learning to not just image-based predictions, but, you know, healthcare predictions uh, more broadly, but in the, you know, maybe starting specifically with the domain of uh, image-based predictions and diagnostics, you know, what are your, what are your, what's your sense of what the, you know, where are we, I guess, is the question. What are the limitations? What, what are we able to do very well right now and and kind of what do you think the path is to making this kind of a standard tool in the physician's toolkit mm-hmm. so one thing that i think that we're able to do very well right now in the medical imaging domain is to automate the diagnoses of diseases in which doctors can sort of look at an image give you a diagnosis and be very confident in their diagnosis so from that data we can sort of collect many, many diagnoses from doctors, train models to replicate the, that performance, and, and, and sort of automate that, that doctor-level di- diagnostics and make it sort of radically available you know, throughout the world in which the people may not have access to that level of expert care. Mm-hmm. Um, the places where we still uh, need work are in the sort of more um, uh, researchy or experimental type predictions like the ones we're talking about here, in which we've shown that there's like some tantalizing correlations, but the data sets, they only have a couple hundred cardiovascular events, for example. And so we w- aren't able to prove that we're able to predict these things at high accuracy, but there's sort of tantalizing evidence that maybe there's something there. And so you could imagine a future in which this, the, this fundus image is actually, you know, taken like more like a, a vital sign, like like your, your like your blood pressure when you go into the doctor's office, where you take this snapshot of the eye, it's a very non-invasive thing, very easy to do, and you get this sort of overall view of someone's health. And so we need, there's lots of work that needs to be done to sort of validate those predictions and those ideas, but mm-hmm. th- that's one, one area that I could go. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of making this more sort of broadly accepted or available, I think one way to do this is to focus on this explanation of the predictions. And so it gives sort of get doctors more like on your side about the prediction. Like um, by providing an explanation, they sort of uh, can can trust it. They can, they can be- believe in what the model 
Paul is doing. Mm-hmm. Did you, out of curiosity, did you interface directly with the doctors for this study? Absolutely. Yeah, we work with, um, we have uh, lots of doctors that we work with through our, our eye disease initiatives. And we also um, work with cardiologists as well to sort of uh, bounce ideas off of them, show them an early results uh, um, and sort of get their feedback on the predictions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, are, were, there, were there any particular you know, conversations or reactions that jumped out at you for, uh, you know, when you presented, um, maybe, you know, with and without presenting, you know, the, the soft attention results, like, uh, did you have those the entire time or did you have some conversations with doctors, you know, before you had the explanations from the attention mechanisms and some after, and like, can you, did you see a marked difference in kind of the way they react? Yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine trying to show a doctor, tell them that you have an AUC of 0.97 for gender, and they kind of they kind of laugh at you. They don't believe it. Um, but then when you show them that heat map and sort of show that it's focusing on the optic disc or maybe features around the optic disc, then they say, oh, yeah, of course we knew that. That, that Of course you can see that. Um, mm. And so it, it really does by 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 showing where uh, in the image the, the model is using to make its prediction, it really does um, provide a level of, of trust and, and also, uh, you know, a level of validity to the results. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the broader research landscape in this area? What are, you know, you've mentioned a bunch of the research that you're doing. Where do you think the most interesting and important activity in this space is happening right now? Mm-hmm. So the the future work for, for for the cardiovascular effort is is certainly in validating in more data, so more data sets, um, trying to find data sets which have um, more cardiovascular events, so we can sort of validate those approaches. And I think as we gather together more and more data, that we'll be able to you know narrow those those confidence intervals and try to decide if this is actually working. So that's the, so the future in that respect is certainly gathering more data. Um, and that's true across a, a wide variety of domains. Actually. Um, we, we have a lot of, um, you know, initial predictions and initial results, but we need lots and lots more data in order to, to validate those things. You know, that almost makes me think that, that the, the take is that, you know, we've kind of solved a lot of the machine learning bits of this, you know, we've got inception, we've got, you know, transfer learning from ImageNet. We've got, um, you know, attention mechanisms and the like to to help with explainability. It, it sounds like you're you're saying that you know, in terms of kind of core, you know, evolving the way we think about or our capabilities on the machine learning side. You know, we we're kind of as far as we need to be, and now we just need more data. Is that taking it too far? Or, you know, or do you agree with that? I think in terms of um medical imaging, I think that's more or less true. Um, there's still research that's happening for sure on better ways, better and more valid ways to do the model explanation, um, ways to incorporate many more predictions simultaneously and things like this. Um, but I think for for medical imaging, I think there's definitely a path forward that we see that is more or less guaranteed to work at this point. We, we've done the early work to show that it's going to work. We just need to execute. Mm-hmm. I think the areas in which it's less clear are, are in other domains. So things like uh, working with medical records and things like working with genomics data and, and other sort of health health bio, biomedicine data. Mm-hmm. There, there's still some more fundamental work that, that needs to happen around you know, network architectures and machine learning models and the like. 
That's right, exactly. Because mm-hmm. there you're, for example, in the medical record space, you're working with sort of time as a dimension that you need to add to the model in some way. There's a lot of unstructured notes and things. And so there's there's sort of a, a, a much wider variety of model architectures that are needed to be explored there for sure. Interesting. In terms of that data challenge, how, how involved were you in that? Like, did you come on this project and the data was there? Or, and, and it sounds like you've used this data set quite a bit, uh, but do you have any experience trying to source this data? And does that lead you leave you with any uh, advice for folks that are interested in doing work in this field but need to get their hands on a data set? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so data is definitely uh, the key. Um, you can't, you can't really can't do anything in the field without <laughs> data. Um, and so, you know, when this project started, it started with literally the word UK Biobank. What is there something interesting there? Yes or no? We'd have no idea. And so, um, it was a matter of sort of starting from that with that data from scratch and sort of deciding what what was in it and learning how all the different fields are encoded and and learning like when the data was trustworthy and and you know which fields were encoded in different ways and things and so there's definitely a lot of work in terms of cleaning up the data you know parsing and downloading and making it you know widely available to the team and things um so there's a lot of engineering work and data science work that goes into that for sure can you uh, maybe give us a sense of the, you know, the timeframes involved in a project like this? It sounds like you, you didn't start from a, a cold start, so it may be a little bit difficult because you've got, you know, certainly a tool chain in place, uh, this data set you've worked with for a while. But uh, in terms of, you know, starting from, uh, you know, the idea to research this project to publishing the paper recently, like what, what was that time frame like? Mm-hmm. So it's something, I think, a little over a year. So it's roughly, you know, four to six months of, you know, digging through the data and deciding what's there. Um, you know, understanding why when I when I load up the, the JPEG, it looks, you know, reversed or whatever, and learning the specifics of the encoding and things like this. Um, mm. You know, that takes time. Di- diving into the data. Um, and so that's, you know, roughly four to six months of, of digging in and trying things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our early our earliest predictions on the gender and AUC were within maybe three to four months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you dive into then you branch out and look at these other predictions like blood pressure and BMI and cardiovascular events and things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and doing this sort of statistical analysis to prove that that was actually working. That probably took another uh three to four months or something. And then, and then there's of course a lot of work that goes into publishing um, a manuscript. And so, you know, we went through rounds of peer reviews and things to get that out there. Sure. Sure. And this particular data set, the biobank data set, uh, or either of them really, are they publicly available or are there hoops that you needed to jump through to get access to them? They're publicly available to qualified researchers. It's a process of ap- applying for access and 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 basically stating that you have a, a a stated research goal in mind, and then they grant they decide to grant you access to that data, and you you can use it. Yeah. Interesting. And are there uh, are there other interesting data sets on your radar? Oh, all kinds. So um, uh, just to talk about the UK Biobank again, they're 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 adding currently adding uh, genomics data to the data set, and that'll be really exciting to see. Um, what's there and what we can predict from it. Um, and, and in terms of fundus imagery, there, there are other uh, data collections that are available. Um, uh, the, you know, there are these things like um, 
uh, sort of Kaggle-like competitions or machine learning competitions, in which mm-hmm. uh, a few of them are, are on Fundus imagery, and so those data sets are available. Awesome. Uh, well, Ryan, this is uh, this has been super interesting. Do you have any final thoughts or words for folks, or anything that we didn't cover? Any questions that uh, I should have asked? Yeah, so it's been super fun. Thank you so much. Um, one one parting thing maybe is I'm I'm super excited about the fact that this work was done in sort of a featureless kind of unbiased way in which I I'm certainly not an ophthalmologist and don't know anything about retinas, um, but we were able to sort of tell the model to use its features to to learn about a patient's health. And then we surprisingly learned about, you know, a bunch of different statistical correlations that were in the data that we wouldn't have found if we had sort of went into it, like sort of presupposing what the features might be and looking at things like the the width of the blood vessels or things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I do like that this is potentially a, a method of scientific discovery that's, that could be used in the future. Um, and people should think about trying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a general advertisement for deep learning and, uh, you know, kind of a data first as opposed to a, a feature first approach. Is that is that kind of where you're headed? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, once again, Ryan, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Ryan or any of the topics covered in this episode, you'll find the show notes at twimlai.com slash talk slash 122. We heard from a lot of you over the weekend about our last episode on the reproducibility crisis and the philosophy of data, and we really appreciate your comments. If you want to get in on the conversation, be sure to hit us up at at Sam Charrington or at twimlai on Twitter or via the show notes page, which we'll link to in the notes for this show. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.